But we are starting off talking a little bit more about a pretty major announcement. The B.C. government giving the Crown Power Utility $10 million to provide up to 8,000 air conditioning units to vulnerable residents in this province. Through this program, people will be able to apply through B.C. Hydro to be considered for free air conditioning units under the program. In addition, health authorities will work with their home health teams to identify community-based vulnerable clients and assist them in working with BC Hydro to gain access to free air conditioning units through this program. As you know, the review panel that was done after the devastating heat dome, this was done by the BC Coroner Service and it found that most of the 619 people who died during that heat dome two summers ago were low income, were vulnerable, they were aged 60 and older, and in many cases lived alone and did not have any way of cooling down in the heat. Well, Daniel Fontaine is joining us now, a new Westminster city councillor. Daniel Fontaine, thank you so much for making some time for us today. Thanks for having me on the show, Joe. Uh, this is going to be, as we just heard from the Premier, people will be able to apply for up to 8,000 air conditioning units that will be paid for through this program. I know that you have some concerns as far as making sure people know that they're eligible because things are a little different in New Westminster. Can you talk a bit about that? Yeah, so uh, I guess what's kind of unique about the city of New Westminster is that we actually are not serviced by BC Hydro. So when I heard the announcement uh, yesterday from the Minister of Health uh, speaking about the $10 million for BC Hydro customers, naturally my first thought was, well, what about New Westminster utility customers? Because all of our citizens within the city of New Westminster do not get their hydro bills or their hydro from uh, BC Hydro. They get it through our own utilities. So uh, I still am, am unaware. I'm still trying to track down information. But based on what I read from the pro- uh, provincial government announcement yesterday, it does not appear that um, anyone who is eligible for New Westminster utility servicing um, is going to be eligible for this uh, program. It'll only be for those through the BC Hydro program. So for me, that's a that's a huge potential gap. And given that New Westminster, unfortunately, during the heat dome had one of, if not the highest per capita death rate uh, during that heat dome. I'm certainly hoping that um, the program that is um, earmarked for BC Hydro can be further expanded and that citizens can apply for that um, a program through their new West utility as well. But I, I, I'm unaware as to whether or not that's going to be the case. Hmm. Why is that that new West kind of goes it alone or doesn't hook into BC Hydro like so many other places in BC do? Yeah, it's longstanding. We've had, um, I think it's one of the oldest, if not the oldest electrical utility in the province of British Columbia. It's a longstanding kind of legacy program that the city of New Westminster has run. The hydro is supplied by BC Hydro, but after that, once the the hydro was given to us as a city from Hydro, uh, BC Hydro, we run everything else after that. So we just finished opening up, for example, a substation in Queensboro. We we have our own kind of capital infrastructure. It's historic. Um, There are a few other centres across very small centres across the province that do run their own utility but it definitely is a gap if a, if the provincial government is going to run a major uh, air conditioning uh, program uh, through something like BC Hydro clearly right in the center of the lower mainland is uh, about 80,000 people who will not be eligible to apply for that given that we don't get our hydro from our bills come from New West utility not through BC Hydro. It seems like something doesn't it that should have been uh, maybe dealt with or at least addressed before the announcement was made? Yeah, that's that's kind of where I was at, Jill, when I read it. Um, I know there have been previous announcements where the provincial government has specifically referenced the new S utility if it is doing something in, in, in that regard. So 
So I'm not sure if it's an oversight, but I know that I brought a motion forward on June 12th at New Westminster Council asking that we actually, through our own utility, we set up an air conditioning program. Uh, unfortunately, that didn't get the endorsation of council. It was punted off to the um, New Westminster Utilities um, Commission. They voted it down, and now we had a watered-down report that came back to council, and it looks like uh, council has approved about $120,000 in, in um and notionally approved, uh, endorsed 120,000 for about 126 air conditioning, air conditioning units within the city. So it's, it's a bit confusing for me as an elected official, to be honest. I'm reading all these reports and hearing all these different programs, and it is a bit of a patchwork. But at the end of the day, we know that we're going to have these climate events again. And we, it, it's incumbent upon the provincial and municipal governments to get super coordinated on this and making sure that nobody's left behind. The other piece, Jill, which, which hasn't really been referenced is um, there are a lot of buildings in New Westminster and beyond that simply do not allow air conditioning. And I didn't hear anything from the province yesterday from the Minister of Health that they're going to be bringing in any uh, particular regulatory changes or any changes to the landlord tenancy agreements that um, uh, allow for people who are vulnerable to bring in air conditioning into their own units because as it stands right now, it's up to the landlord. If the landlord does not want to have air conditioning in that building, no, no matter how many programs are announced, those seniors will still be very vulnerable um, or those people with immune uh, co- compromised immune systems, uh, they still will not be able to um, access those air conditioning units because they can't install them. Right, and that was I was unclear of this as well, unless there's a line about this in, in the announcement. But is it only fixed air conditioners, like the kinds you see that are in the building, that are uh, in the window, that are fixed? Because how could a landlord, if we were talking about the ones that many people went out and purchased after the heat dome, maybe even before the heat dome, if you're talking about the, the ones that are freestanding, you can roll them around a bit and vent mm-hmm. them out a window, a landlord wouldn't be able to tell you you couldn't have one of those. Oh, they most certainly can. Oh. Oh. <laughs> so, All right. Yeah, so they're, they're, you can, and a lot of the tenancy agreements do state that there are not to be any air conditioning units because, uh, you know, it, it's motivated by a number of factors, mm-hmm. but I'm assuming that the landlord doesn't want hoses hanging out of windows and the, 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 the potential unsightliness of all of that of each, you know, individual um, homeowner, you know, popping an air conditioning unit into their windows. So they are uh, um, uh, currently and, and are permitted, uh, I believe, through provincial legislation, they're permitted to restrict those um, portable air conditioners from being installed into um, uh, into units. So this whole program yesterday, uh, besides the fact that New Westminster um, electrical utility uh, patrons might not be eligible for it, there's another whole parallel question, and that is around whether or not, even with those who wish to apply for the program, whether or not they can even install it. Because right now, I believe that the regulations permit landlords to prevent those air conditioning units from being installed in, into homes where people really need them. I was wondering, too, in that the, the $10 million is for people can apply and for up to 8,000 air conditioners. So even if you made all of checked all of those boxes that you are able to have an air conditioner, you apply, you're approved, you get it. Uh, these are people that we've also we've identified as the most vulnerable and in a lot of cases, low income. They mm-hmm. draw a lot of electricity. People that have air yeah. conditioners will notice that your bill goes up when you're running that thing. And I was curious yeah. if there if you've seen or if there's any uh, addressing of that, that you, you can't suddenly saddle somebody. If you can't afford an air conditioner, how are you supposed to afford the bills that come with it? 
100%. And that is why the motion that I brought forward to council, which was eventually um, uh, kiboshed, but the motion I brought forward was two parts. One was to assist with the purchase of the air conditioning. And the other part, which was equally as important as you just noted, was the ability for a rebate on the actual air conditioning uh, electricity usage. Because we all know that if you plug in an air conditioner, you know your bills are going to go up. So I said it's a two-part process that our, our utility would provide a bit of a rebate on the excess usage as a result of the air conditioning unit as well as help to subsidize the purchase of the unit itself. I didn't hear that in the program yesterday. Uh, It may be something that's coming forward in the future, or maybe BC Hydro will be announcing that these individuals who are eligible for that will also be eligible for a subsidy or a rebate on their electricity usage. But to date, the announcement yesterday leaves a lot of gaps and a lot more questions being asked than it provided for answers. All right. Well, Daniel, we will be following up with you and hopefully getting some of those answers. But thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for your time today. Thanks for having me on, Joe. Well, it is time to talk travel headlines. We'll also get some great deals for you. Claire Newell is here, president and founder of Travel Best Bets. Claire, good afternoon. Oh, good afternoon, Jill. I can't believe it's coming up to a long weekend and that at the end of the weekend, it's July. (laughs) July 3rd, you know, when we all come back to work or July 4th. It's crazy. It is, isn't it? Yeah, every time of year, every time at this time of year, it just starts flying right by. Uh, But people are traveling. We know it's going to be very, very busy. And we've got some news about Porter Airlines and some new service. Yeah, this is really great news for those living in Victoria because Porter Airlines is introducing a new service between Victoria and Toronto Pearson. It's starting on September the 20th, but the best part is that these daily round-trip flights, they'll have good connecting um, flights to places like Ottawa, Montreal, Halifax, and St. John's. So for those living in Victoria, this is really, really welcome news. Yeah, definitely. It's always nice, isn't it, to see more uh, flights and more daily round trips and those types of things announced. Yeah, we and we are constantly seeing them. I mean, the next uh, thing I was going to talk about is the fact that Linksair, another uh, ultra low cost carrier here in Canada, will be launching flights between Vancouver and Montreal. It actually started last Friday, six times a week, which is really quite frequent. And the rates are so cheap. I mean, they're introductory fares, so you can bet there's like five on each aircraft. But if you can grab one, I was seeing them at $89 one way. Hmm. So that's a steal to get to Montreal, which is such a fun city to go to. Oh, yeah, definitely. All right. So that's some great news for people looking to fly in those areas. Also, some advice from CBSA about a lot of people that will be traveling on the long weekends. And as you mentioned, there's one right around the corner. Yeah, and I, I thought I would just kind of uh, elaborate a little and not just do um, the ones from CBSA, but just like a short list of my summer travel tips because they are going to be busy, the weekends especially. Um, my first is to, if you're leaving Canada, make sure you visit travel.gc.ca just to check the en- entry and exit requirements. Some places you may be traveling may not just need your valid passport. You may need extra validity on that passport. You may need an ETA, which is an electronic authorization. And I'm noticing a lot of people forgetting to do this. And you have to do it before you board your flight. And many times it takes, you know, 24 hours to get. So just go to that website to check. I also recommend that you register your trip on that um, website, travel.gc.ca, because 
if something goes sideways, and you just never know what can happen. The government will know how to get in contact with you. Double check your documentation, especially expiry dates on your document for travel, whether that's a Nexus card or a passport or whatever it is. And also, if you're traveling with kids and maybe one or no parents going because maybe they're going with an auntie or a grandma, um, make sure you grab a consent letter. You can easily download that off travel.gc.ca. But people are tending to forget that. I'm often getting emails on that, that issue as well. Get insurance. Um, you can check your work policy, your credit card policy, but get it if you aren't covered either of those ways. I'm still, Jill, recommending people pack light, carry on only if they can do it. Just make sure you know the size and weight limits. The airlines are getting really strict about those. Um, uh, use technology to save time waiting in line. So, for example, check in online. Make sure that you take advantage of, we've talked about this before, but book your security screening in advance. You can do that on the airport's website. and You just book a time. You can do it for up to 10 people if you're traveling together. So it's really worth it. It's like right beside the Nexus lineup. And then on the way back, do your advanced declaration via the ArriveCan app. Again, there's a lane right beside Nexus for those who have that QR code um, saved on their phone or printed out. I'm saying pack snacks. And a refillable water bottle, bottle, super expensive at the airport, and pack your patience. It's going to be busy over the long weekend. All right. That is uh, all great advice and uh, great to keep that in mind as well. It sounds like common sense, but I'm sure you know that a lot of times we can forget one or two of those steps, and that can cause a really big delay once we try oh, to, uh, to get there. Yeah, and I, and I get those types of emails all the time. So it's not like, I mean, I get it. It is feels like common sense for those people who travel a lot but these types of things are forgotten every week i see these types of emails all right so that's uh, good advice for people uh, let's look at the world's top carriers and some canadian airlines have made this list yeah actually five of them did and uh, air canada was kind of the big winner they won in three different categories uh, they emerged as also the highest ranking airline in canada out of the top 100, they were number 38. Previously, like just last year, they were 50th. So that's good news for them. Um, Air Can- they were also, I should mention, voted the most family-friendly airline and received recognition for having the best airline staff in Canada. Um, Air Canada Rouge, which is the low-cost subsidiary of Air Canada, they also made the list ranking 93rd um, among the top three low, uh, low-cost carriers in North America. WestJet, um, out of the top 100 airlines in the world, they play 64th, Transat, uh, 62nd, and Porter squeaked in. They were the 99th spot of the top 100. And these are legit. Like this um, Skytrax airline awards, it was done at the Paris Air Show, and it surveyed, the survey was done September 2022 to May of this year, 100 uh, countries were represented and 20.23 million people entered, like eligible entries. So these are real results. So it's really great for Canada to come out where they did. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Great to be on that list. Uh, let's talk about the, this is the largest ever single aircraft order. This uh, seems like a pretty big order. Wow. <laughs> I was shocked. Yeah, it's um, Indigo, which is a low cost carrier in India, and they have bought 500 Airbus 
A320 aircraft. It's worth $50 billion at list price. So it is the record for the the biggest single purchase agreement in the history of commercial aviation. Um, And this is massive. The interesting thing about this is the second largest order was Air India, their competitor. And it was a recent order of 470 Airbus and um, it was a combination of Airbus and Boeing. So whatever that, I mean, India is is making a name for itself with with aircraft. <laughs> Definitely. All right. What else is happening? And oh, this is interesting. And I didn't realize this was still a thing, but I know we have talked about this before, whereas the rules used to be if you were flight attendants, uh, if you were female, you had to wear black patent pumps and certain rules. <laughs> and it seems like that was such a long time ago. It wasn't that long ago, but we've seen big changes when it comes to how flight attendants can dress and uh, how they can look. Yeah, it's really nice to see. So um, Australian airline Qantas joined the likes of British Airways, Virgin Atlantic, and a couple of other airlines that are basically making their employee dress codes gender neutral. So instead of having two separate regulations for male and female staff, there's going to be one set of requirements for all of them. And some of the updated rules allow staff, including their cabin crew, to have long hair, um, men or or women, and as long as it's worn in a bun or ponytail, just pulled back, basically tidy. Um, They can choose to wear makeup or not. They can wear glasses instead of contact lenses, and they can opt for flat shoes. I mean, who's not? I think that should have been there a long time ago, but um, it's great to see that. So Qantas just started doing that. So they released their new grooming and uniform styling guidelines. And it's great to see. So was were there still or are there still airlines that that make that? So you have to wear contact lenses instead of glasses that you have to wear makeup? Yes, there (sighs) are. And there's many of them. And like I've seen if you if and I know you've traveled a lot as well. You know, when you walk through the airport, you're just shocked that the, the gals, especially the women, I noticed that they're wearing makeup. They've got heels on. They've got a, like a pencil skirt on. And this just be the, I don't even wear that to work here. It's the most <laughs> uncomfortable. But imagine doing that in, in like a tiny little aircraft, 32,000 feet in the air on a single aisle and pushing a huge cart. And I mean, it's just unreal. <laughs> so I, I don't know. You know, what I, I thought more would have done this. When you think too, if you if you surveyed passengers and and you were the question was, do you want your flight attendants to make sure they were wearing makeup and their hair is done and they're wearing contacts, not glasses, or would you want maybe a free drink on the flight or more free food or more staff members or things to make sure the flights yeah. were all on time? My guess is people would go for those things instead. I totally agree with you. And I think to myself what I wear in a plane, like I try to look kind of presentable, but I go for comfort all the way. I'm talking slip on (laughs) shoes, thick socks. I mean, I just, and I, I, even when I sleep, I just looked crazy. Like I've got my eye mask on and two different blankets covering my face. It just, I just, I can't can't believe what they, they, some of these airlines are making their flight attendants endure. Yeah. All right. Uh, let's get to you have a couple of bad behavior stories. So we'll look at those oh. quickly before the deals. These are kind of unbelievable, too. OK, yeah. Two United Airlines baggage handlers are facing drug charges because they were stealing marijuana from passengers check bags. First of all, you shouldn't be traveling with marijuana. <laughs> but the fact that they were doing this has been going on, they say, for years. And um, so that's uh, that was one story. The other story that kind of caught my eye was that a Delta Airlines flight out of Edinburgh, Scotland, where I happen to be born, um, was arrested for suspected intoxication uh, like 30 minutes before the flight was supposed to go. 
Anyway, he was detained, and it all didn't go. They were they were careful about it, but two bad behavior stories in a week. That just kind of caught my eye. Yeah, yeah, definitely. All right, let's get to the deals. What do you have for us today? Well, first, I have super cheap Vegas. So if you've been waiting one for the fall, this is unreal. November the 20th through until December 12th. Not sure how long it's going to last, but it's airfare and three nights hotel. The base fare is almost the same as the tax, but the taxes don't change no matter how much it costs. So it's $199, the tax is $196, and it's a four-star hotel. So it's so good. Mm. Um, the next one I've got is the Riviera Maya. If you've been waiting for uh, a November deal, I found two dates, um, November 1st or November 29th. But if you can go on either of those, um, there's a package to a great hotel. It's air and seven nights in a four-star beachfront all-inclusive resort, 1049 taxes of 610 Now, that's a drop of about $350 compared to last week. So, again, not sure how long it'll last, but a good deal. And uh, one last one, it's a two for one, and it has to, this sale ends on June 30th. Lots of people have taken advantage of it. This is, I've got a seven night um, Danube River cruise, but there's lots of others to choose from the Rhine. Um, You can do Lyon and Provence. There's just a lot to choose from, but uh, this Danube one is a seven night, October 27th or 30th. It's the seven night all-inclusive deluxe river cruise. So that's all your meals, beverages, um, sightseeing, guided tours, transfers, everything's included. The first person pays $38.99, taxes of $380. The second is free. They only pay the taxes of $380. So it's a really good buy if you've been looking for a river cruise. But again, they have to be booked by um, the 30th of June. All right. So you've only got a couple of days if you want to jump on that. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Claire, <laughs> thank you as always. Great to chat with you. And we'll talk to you again soon. Sounds good, Joe. Have a great week. As you've been hearing, and we just talked briefly about customers using BC ferries and planning to use BC ferries this long weekend are bracing or are being told to brace for a lot of busy sailings as well as, well, very, very busy if you don't already have a reservation on some of the routes. Deborah Marshall is joining us now, Executive Director of Public Affairs at BC Ferries. Deborah, thank you so much for being with us. Oh, it's my pleasure, Joan. So tell us a bit of what's what's happening. I understand you've already reassigned more than 6,600 bookings because of one ferry vessel that's still in refit. What's happening there? That's right. Well, the Coastal Celebration was uh, scheduled to come out of refit on June the 15th. And unfortunately, that refit work is taking longer than we had originally planned. Uh, The vessel now, uh, we're expecting to be out of service uh, by Tuesday. So unfortunately, we will miss the long weekend with that ship. So what we have done is we have uh, reassigned over 6,600 bookings that were scheduled to go on the Coastal Celebration. We've reassigned those customers reservations to the three other ships that will be operating between Tawasin and Swartz Bay. So that would mean, I imagine, that the, the amount of bookings on those class or those crossings then, that's not going to leave a lot of space for anybody who's just showing up at the terminal? Well, that's right. We do expect smooth sailing for customers that do have bookings. But for anybody who is planning on traveling as a uh, standby passenger in a vehicle, they could expect multiple sailing waits, uh, particularly Thursday and Friday out of our Tawasin Terminal, and then returning from Vancouver Island, Sports Bay on the holiday Monday. 
I understand as well, or part of the release of this information is encouraging anybody that if you are going without a confirmed booking, encouraging people to go as walk-on passengers. But I mean, that's that, that's not going to be doable for a lot of people who are planning family vacations, uh, depending on where they're going. Well, it's not always practical to travel as a foot passenger, but for those who can make the switch, we are encouraging them to do that. We do take uh, uh, foot passenger reservations as well, so customers can be secured a booking on our major routes as a foot passenger. So that's an option for folks where it does work for them. Uh, if a lot of people do that, though, and make that switch and are able to and go on as walk-on passengers, is that though would that not have another or bigger impact then on those vehicles? that don't have reservations and that isn't it a capacity issue that once there are so many people, you, even if there was potentially space for cars that you couldn't put them on? Well, all of our vessels are licensed by Transport Canada to carry a maximum number of passengers, uh, and that's all regards to the safety equipment on board the ship and, and the number of crew we have on board. It is possible to max out uh, four-foot passenger space. That has happened on occasion on long weekends, but uh, we did put this message out today. We want our customers to know that uh, one of our vessels is not back from refit yet, and we do expect a lot of congestion on that to Austin Swartz they run this weekend. And with the the reservations that were on that vessel put to the other the other vessels then, is that going to cause backlog as far as are they slower vessels or what kind of an impact do you think that's going to have not having the coastal celebration? Uh, no, they're not slower vessels. Uh, we will continue to sail both of our Spirit class vessels. Those are the largest ones in the fleet and the major routes. We've also got the Queen of New Westminster will be servicing the route. But uh, because we have had to reassign these reservations, we do expect very limited drive-up space for those customers who have not made a booking. And can you talk a bit about the difference in the sizes of those vessels and, and kind of how, how many people or how many vehicles do the different ferries uh, carry? Or are they able to carry? Well, the Spirit class vessels can carry uh, 358 vehicles and 2,100 passengers and crew. Uh, Queen of New Westminster can accommodate uh, f- uh, 254 vehicles and uh, just over 1,300 passengers and crew. And the uh, the Coastal class, which is the vessel that's still in refit, uh, that ship carries uh, 310 vehicles, to put it in perspective. All right. Uh, the Premier was asked about this earlier today and uh, saying that people do depend on the ferries, especially on a long weekend. And, and yes, they anticipate that it's going to be busy, but it's always a bit, uh, I mean, I know that this is a vessel that's not ready to be put back in service, but people are going to hear this and, and hear that once again, there's a major vessel that's out of service going into a long weekend. Do you think this is fair that, that people have to be putting up with this again? Well, it certainly wasn't the long weekend that we planned. Uh, We had scheduled that vessel to be out of refit well in advance of the long weekend. So we certainly apologize to our customers uh, for having to make uh, alternate arrangements over the weekend. Is there a, a, a timing issue or a planning issue as far as when vessels go in for refit? And that I, I get that you said this was supposed to be done a couple of weeks ago and it was supposed to be out. But is there a better way that perhaps for unanticipated delays that they wouldn't bleed on over into a long weekend? Well, you know, there was some unanticipated work that's going on over at the shipyard right now, and our engineers are working very hard uh, with C-SPAN engineers and, and their staff to get the ship back into service. 
The ship was planned to be back in the schedule on June 15th, which would have been well in advance of the long weekend. Uh, I would imagine people are hearing this news, and if there's somebody that was looking to go standby, they might be trying to get a reservation right now or uh, looking to see what they can do. Uh, Deborah, is the website working? I'm trying to get on the website, and oh, it seems to be working now. It was giving me a link saying that it, it wasn't operating, or no, it's still saying our site is currently unavailable. Uh, are you having issues with the BC Ferries website? We are having issues with the website right now. Uh, I've just pulled it up on my screen. It seems to be working, but I know we did have a glitch. Our IT department's working on it uh, very quickly to get uh, any bugs out for the weekend. Uh, and do, do you know that? Is that because people are hearing this and, and trying to make changes or you're, you're seeing kind of uh, unusual uh, high amounts of traffic on the website? Uh, I don't have that information front of me, in front of me, Jill, but I would imagine there are lots of people going to the website. And again, I mean, the, the Premier again said that, that that people do depend on this and are, are hoping that they can have these, these weekends that they have booked. Uh, here we have a vessel that's not going to be in service. Uh, people are being told walking on would be better than driving if you don't have a reservation. And now they can't even get on the website to figure out what's going on. Well, I just want to remind our customers that uh, everybody who has the bookings, they've made their reservations in advance. Uh, those sailings should go smoothly for those customers. Uh, you can also follow us on Twitter. That's a great way to get information. And I know our IT department is on high alert this weekend to make sure everything functions properly. All right. Deborah Marshall, we'll leave it there for today. Thanks so much, though, for being available. Thanks for joining us today. No problem. You take care. Well, if you are a dog owner, you know it can be difficult to find places to let your dog run off leash, especially in certain parts of the city of Vancouver. Well, the Vancouver Park Board has approved the designs for some new areas for off-leash dogs. And Scott Jensen is joining us now, the Vancouver Park Board Chair. Scott, thank you so much for being here. My pleasure. Thank you for having me here today. Well, I know it's uh, it's not perhaps the top of the priority list for everybody, but there are a lot of dog owners in the city, in the, the Metro Vancouver area as well, and a lot of places that are underserved with parks, with uh, areas, outdoor areas. So can you tell us a little bit about what the Park Board has approved as far as expanding these areas? Uh, certainly. Well, the first one is the Emory Barnes Park, and, and currently there is a um, fenced off-leashed dog area at Emory, Emory Barnes Park. Um, and what we're looking at doing is, is expanding and, and renovating that space. Um, that e expansion is, is going to allow um, a small dog area so that those that have dogs that might be a little bit more shy or timid have, a, have an area for themselves. Um, and further to add a little bit more uh, aesthetics to that, to Emory Barnes Park as well. Um, the other, so that is a, a, a renewal, and then we're adding two new off-leash fenced areas, one at uh, Granville Park East and one at Heather Park. So those are two areas that, uh, you know, are within that uh you know, required equity zone that uh, the park board has looked at over the years to ensure that uh, that highlights that these are needed areas. Certainly, um, listening to the public speaking on on Monday, as well as uh, you know, responding to to many emails, um, you know, we still have some work to do. 
And is it an issue that you hear a lot about from people uh, on, on either side, whether it's people that want more space or people saying, well, in some of these, and I know some of the parks you just mentioned, uh, do- people are letting their dogs go off leash anyway. Uh, is it something you hear a lot, you hear as a commissioner, or as a chair, you hear a lot about? Yes, yes, I have. Um, you know, I'm a dog owner and, and I go to dog parks, um, whether they are the uh, fenced in off leash dog parks or sometimes going to the, the leashed areas. And certainly uh, the concern is that, uh, you know, from residents is that there, there's not enough of the, those fenced in off leashed areas within the city. Um, and then when you go to other parks, uh, you know, and dogs are running off leash, uh, you know, entering onto areas where people are having a picnic, um, you know, that, that's pretty bothersome for people. So, you know, we, we do hear both sides of that. And, and the, the desire ultimately is, is to create more spaces that, uh, you know, uh, responsible dog owners can take their dogs, have them off leash and have them play and be safe. Right. And uh, is there also enforcement? And I'm glad you, you mentioned that and brought that up. Uh, I was at a, a park yesterday and literally, like you, you were saying, people were having picnics and sitting out in the yard. This was not an off-leash area. But there, were, there was one family with their dog. That ball was pinging off of people and they were throwing it uh, through where people were sitting on the grass and picnicking. And even I looked at them and thought, well, how do you think that that's appropriate to what, what, that your dog is just barreling through people? But it seems like that happens quite a bit. Yes, it does. And, and certainly that's one of the biggest things that, that I hear about is just the number of, of individuals, whether it be dog owners, uh, individuals uh, who are smoking or with, uh, you know, causing a disturbance, you know, people that come to our park for their personal enjoyment, finding that uh, other people's enjoyment, uh, you know, supersedes their own. And, and that's something that, that is a problem. And, uh, you know, so what our rangers are doing are going out and, and addressing these concerns. And I will always say the best thing for people to do is to report these uh situations uh using the the 311 app or or phoning 311 um that really triggers our, our rangers to to be activated at these spaces especially when we start to see you know growing patterns of of behavior we can actually start sending them proactively to those areas and um you know directing those individuals to the, those spaces where uh they they should be uh doing those activities and just going back to the three parks that you mentioned, the Heather Park, Granville Park, uh, Emory Barnes Park, uh, I think it will be welcome news to dog owners that there is going to be the expansion and the off-leash areas. You also said, though, there's still more work to be done. Uh, do you think, are there still parts of the city where there isn't enough space or what is that work that still needs to be done? Yeah, so certainly the... Um, the neighbourhoods that are uh, needing uh, dogs uh, off-leash dog areas um, are the is the communities of, of Mount Pleasant as well as uh, Grandview Woodland, and so you know staff is uh, looking into you know where we're going to go next, and uh, so uh, these are areas that that will need off-leash dog areas, and these are uh, neighborhoods that uh, you know. For myself, I want to make sure that we can invest in those neighborhoods uh, uh, for maybe next summer or the summer after that.
I know a lot of people in those areas go to the schools after hours and, and the dog rule being that I think it's after five, you can utilize school grounds if they're not locked or if they are, they're able. I, I, I know there's an issue there too, though. Technically, I think if you're at a school ground, you're supposed to have your dog on leash. But again, when we're talking about neighborhoods where there are no off-leash areas, it, it's not a huge shock to see people. And not that the dogs are being unruly or there's anything wrong with that, but they are technically breaking the rules by going off-leash. Exactly. And, you know, I think, you know, I'm also a school teacher. And so one of the, the concerns that uh, neighbors have is that some of these uh, schools um, are fenced in um, play areas. And so, you know, that, that school uh, becomes a fenced in off leashed um, dog park for, for the neighborhood um, after hours because of the lack of um uh, areas within their neighborhoods. And, and again, uh, what we're hopeful to do is by investing in our parks, uh, we can take that um, those individuals that are uh, doing things that are not in compliance with the VSP um, protocols and, and give them a place where they can go with their dogs and, and, and be within the, the, the uh, be compliant with bylaws. All right. So again, I know a lot of uh, dog owners will be happy that the, the work is being done and that this is going to be happening at those areas. Uh, Scott, I was hoping to ask you as well, and this is a story that my colleague Jordan Armstrong is working at on Global News. There'll be a much more comprehensive story on the news hour tonight, but he has received more than 300 pages, I think, of freedom of information documents. And this has to do with the Stanley Park train and more about what it was that led to the the train to be closed. We know it's been closed for quite some time. Uh, these talk about the fact that uh, the track spikes were so rusty that the rails would move as trains passed over. Uh, some of the carriage wheels were in such poor shape uh, that there was no uh, articulation. There was a huge risk or a risk of derailment. Uh, one engine had excessive oil leaking onto the brake lining. That was a fire risk. Uh, this train, though, was running with kids on it, with people on it, right up until uh, it was inspected and pulled out of service. What can you say? about uh, this new information about the Stanley Park train? Well, that's very concerning. And uh, I do know that uh, what we're working on right now is, is working to ensure that uh, when uh, operational, it will be safely operational. Um, and again, you know, this is the, the timeline that we are being presented with is not ideal. But as, as Jordan Armstrong is going to present out tonight, um, that there are a lot of concerns with this train and um, I want to, in, for myself and for my safety and for the safety of the loved ones that uh, go on this train, I want to make sure that this train is safe when it is operational, that all of these concerns are addressed and that uh, those that get on that train uh, know that it has been uh, maintained properly throughout it, it's, uh, since uh, once it's operational. When you say the timeline's not ideal, do you, do you have an idea or a guesstimate on when it might be up and running again? Well, what we've done is we've engaged actually a third-party contractor with knowledge in specific manufacturing standards, and uh, they're assessing the entire uh, train fleet. And uh, so they're going to be reporting back with uh, uh, a remediated uh, plan uh, to, to return this back uh, to operation. Um, you know, right now, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm learning very well, <laughs> trying to not uh, repeat what timelines are kind of presented out because, you know, the, the goalposts are changing as we, you know, start to recognize 
uh, more and more kind of the challenges that the, this little train has uh, presented to us. So, you know, right now, you know, as we start to strip away, not me personally, but as they start to really deep dive into this train, uh, you know, newer and newer issues uh, are being brought to be uh, brought to our attention that need to be attended to. So, you know, what I can say is that uh, this is a priority for this board. Um, we have, uh, and I should say, uh, this is a priority for the mayor as well. I know that the mayor has, has come down to look at the train um, and is very interested in ensuring that this train is operational uh, for these big upcoming uh, um celebration times for the the train specifically we've got the fright night or uh we've got the uh halloween train and we've also got the christmas train so these are the the goals that we're looking for and again this is a high priority for us and uh you know we're really trying to make sure that uh, this is done in that timeline but it's also when it is ready it is safe for all users to to go on there and also you know safe for the environment you know we don't want you know oil leaking into uh stanley park all right scott thank you so much as always thanks for coming on the show my pleasure thank you very much